Amen. Amen. Uh, this morning, we're going to be in a number of different places. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, you can find it in the back of the pew in front of you. You're going to find a table of contents at the front of that. It's going to let you know where the different books are located. The large numbers are going to be chapters. The small numbers are going to be verses. And again, this morning, we're going to be in a number of different places. And so feel free not to turn to every passage with us if you're struggling to find that. Uh, this last year, and it was actually just, just came out this week, uh, the Uversion Bible app announced their uh, most searched favorited verse for 2019, which I was kind of wondering, is that a little bit early? I mean, how, how resounding of a defeat are the other verses feeling right now that you're calling it that early? But uh, the verse uh, for the 400 million subscribers to the Uversion Bible app, they found that Philippians 4, 6 it says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, was the verse that most resonated, most favorited, uh, most shared, or whatever. Now, at the beginning of that verse really begins the idea, right, that, that these people are looking to find satisfied, looking to find some answer to, caught up in the idea of don't be anxious about anything. They want peace. They want this experience of peace. They want a cessation of the kind of wrangling within their soul, this disquieting feeling where I just have this sense that, that my relationships are broken, that my relationships amidst my family, amidst my friends, in our community, in our nation, in the world, we have this sense that, that these things are broken, and we want to see these things remedied. We want to see these things made right. We want to see them made whole. So a whole host of people went out to find that, and, and they were met with this idea of do not be anxious about anything. And so today I want us to begin this search for peace that I think the Bible gives us a decidedly clear and concise response on it. So we're going to look to answer two questions. Uh, where does peace come from and what does peace look like? Where does peace come from and what does it look like? Let's start in an unlikely place. Why not? If you flip to the book of Second Chronicles, you'll encounter a, a king by the name of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat is a king over Judah. And in case you're just thinking, I, I don't understand, what's this guy all about? Well, Jehoshaphat is the great-great-grandson of Solomon. So it goes Rehoboam, Abijah, Asa, and then our study for the day, uh, Jehoshaphat. Now, Jehoshaphat is king in Judah, and, and he's doing a really great job when you come into chapter 17 and, and we find that he's really kind of set his heart, in some sense, following his father Asa, but also in line with Solomon and in line with David. Look at verses 3 and 4. He says, The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the earlier ways of his father David. He did not seek the Baals. So he's not engaged in idol worship. He's not engaged in, in worshiping uh, these false gods that are set out and opposed to the one true God. Verse 4, but he sought the God of his father and walked in his commandments and not according to the practices of Israel. And so we learn that, man, Jehoshaphat is, is doing a great job. He's following the Lord and the Lord is blessing him, we read in verse 10. It says, and the fear of the Lord fell upon all the kingdoms of the lands that were all around Judah and they made no war against Jehoshaphat. 
When the people around them looked at Judah and they said, this is a nation we don't want to trifle with. This is a nation we don't want to mess with. Let's not go to war with them because it's not going to go well for us if, in fact, we do. And so they're enjoying prosperity. They are enjoying peace, this cessation of violence. But then is the case uh, would be and often is, we, as you read through the Old Testament, Jehoshaphat begins to make some questionable decisions. He allies himself with the king of Israel, a man by the name of Ahab, that if you have time, you can go and read about, and he's just this really troubled individual, and he has this really wicked wife named Jezebel, and so you can read all about them. But he allies himself, and so he sets himself uh, against God as he goes and, and, and seeks to work and, 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 and uh, to go to war with Ahab. And so as we open up in chapter 20, we see that the things have changed, where once People were terrified. No one wanted to go to a war against Judah because they knew that Judah was a nation that stood with the Lord. Now we find, as we open it up, after this, uh, verse 1 of chapter 20, after this, the Moabites, the Ammonites, and with them some of the Meunites came out against Jehoshaphat for battle. I mean, things have gone south. Things have gone downhill on the basis of Jehoshaphat's error. He allied himself with, with a man, with a family who has decidedly set out against the Lord, not seeking to follow him fervently, not seeking to follow him faithfully. And so Jehoshaphat hears this message that for once he'd enjoyed tremendous and uninterrupted peace, now he has these three armies coming out to get him, coming out to declare war on him. And so he's faced with this decision. What am I going to do in the midst of facing these three armies? Do I marshal my uh, forces? Do, do, we, do we get out there with shield and with javelin and with sword? And do we just rush headlong into this? No. Look at what he does in verses 3 and 4. It says, Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord, and all the cities of Judah came to seek the Lord. In the midst of this, and in facing terrific opposition, Jehoshaphat doesn't look at it and say, look, I got this solidly. We're just going to rally forces. We're going to go out there in this terrific tour de force, and they're going to back down. No, in the midst of this, he recognizes we have to get straight with God. We have to set our hearts on him, and he's already moving the hearts of his people towards the Lord. And so the people come, and they rally around Jehoshaphat, and they fast with him because they recognize that if they are to be saved, it's going to take something so much greater than them. And so Jehoshaphat begins to offer this kind of prayer and petition to the Lord, and you see that in verses 6 through 11. He begins and he says, O Lord our God, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? In essence, are you not powerful over all things? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations, and in your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. In, in essence, begging the question, they're coming to destroy us, but we recognize you have them. They're coming to lay us waste. They're coming to bring our kingdom to an end, but you have this all in your hand. The nations, even these Ammonites, Moabites, and Meunites that are coming against your people, you have them all. And so he runs through this, and he's describing the exodus and how God preserved them, and he's describing how they came into the land and how God drove people from their midst, recognizing who God is and what God has done in the midst of their impending peril. And then in verse 12, he offers this 
request to the Lord. He says, O our God, will you not execute judgment on them, on the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Meunites? Listen to how he describes his predicament. We are powerless against this horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Jehoshaphat comes to this amazingly clear understanding. We cannot deliver ourselves. You know, the truth of this statement was true for him and and this, this immense amount of folks coming to get him, and it is true for us today as we face all kinds of different issues, as we face all kinds of varied struggles. Some of us, our struggles are emotional, and we have this understanding that, that we are not able to marshal ourselves, be good enough, be great enough to overcome these things. Whoop, I go overcome that. And so in the midst of these things, we're not able to overcome it. We're not able to best these things. We're not able to destroy these things unlike this. That was a poor illustration. I'm really sorry. I didn't know it was behind me. It's all good right now. Woo! This is why Jehoshaphat was also (laughs) anti-tech. Not really. Uh, He didn't know. And so let me give give me 30 seconds to kind of clear myself. Jesse, if you want to check it, feel free. (laughs) Man, we can't deliver ourselves. Uh, And because we're live streaming, there's no no chance of editing that. But how true is that statement that that what we want is to be delivered and who we rely on most of our times in all of our predicaments is ourselves. We rely on ourselves. We are, uh, tend to be our first course of action in the midst of problems. uh, The first thing we begin to think of is how can I fix this? How can I marshal myself? Who can I go to most immediately? And Jehoshaphat nails it and he leads us in this right response. God is who our eyes need to be fixed on. God is the one that we need to give our attention to. And so in the midst of kind of this hubbub, and and Jehoshaphat's there, and he's speaking in front of this whole crowd, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon a man named Jehaziel. And Jehaziel, in verse 15, begins to speak, and he speaks as a mouthpiece of God. He says, listen, all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. Not at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but is God's. What a terrific statement. Jehaziel hears from the Lord, and he begins to speak, and he answers the question, from whence does our peace come? It comes from the Lord. This is not a battle that they can win. This is a battle that God will deliver them from. And he goes on in verse 17, he tells them, in essence, there is no need for them to fight. He says, you will not need to fight this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. And what a terrific promise that he receives and that he communicates. You have this whole host of people gathered around their king who should be mighty and he should be strong. And he's chosen in this moment to display his strength, not in himself and in his ability, but to display his strength in complete and utter dependence on the one and true king, God who sits in heaven. 
And Jehaziel recognizes the king's good leading and following the Lord, and then he calls the people to recognize that what God is calling them to do in the midst of this is to trust him. There's no need for them to fight. There's no need for them to think, oh my goodness, I wish I'd really been on my New Year's resolution last year. I kept having intentions to set out and become better with a sword and to lose a little bit of weight and become a little bit more nimble. I didn't do those things. Now these three armies are coming out. It's all on me. Jehaziel interrupts all these things and he says, no, don't worry about this. Keep your eyes fixed on him. The Lord has this. You remain steadfast in him. There's no need to fight. And how do the people respond? The people hear this, and, and, and notice it's interesting that they don't begin to instantly question Jehaziel and say, listen, listen, we understand that there's this terrific number of folks coming out, and, and maybe we could just make it look like we're asleep, and they come in, we yell, <laughs> and we've got them in this moment of surprise, and, and we know that the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Meunites are terrified when people jump out from behind a dark corner, so maybe we should do that. When they hear this word from Jehaziel, they give themselves to worship. And they're worshiping on the basis of the promise given, not the basis of the experience of already having received and walking in God's peace. God calls us to worship him on the basis of his promises and his word, not necessarily our experience. This worship precedes their experience. And so they go out there, and they're gathered in worship. He bows his head to the ground, and all of Jude and all the inhabitants fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. A whole host of people giving themselves to worshiping unashamed in the, in the presence of impending doom, on the basis of the solidness of his word. And so they bow down to worship him, and they stand up, verse 19, to praise the Lord. Now, if you were to continue to read this chapter, you were to read that they were to go out there and, and they're singing and praising and the armies are coming and the Lord routes these armies and he leads them to attack one another. And then in the end, the spoils of war are so great that after three days of picking up all the loot, there's still more to pick up. The Lord utterly destroys their enemies and they do nothing. So we walk away from this and we have a decidedly concise and simple response to our two questions. Where does peace come from? Our peace comes from the Lord. And what does peace look like? It looks like God devastating our enemies. As we continue in this, this thought of, of, of peace and where is it, the prophet Isaiah, writing not to Judah but to Israel, in Isaiah chapter 9, it takes the most famous of all these kind of discussions of, of peace and this child of peace that we had read for us a moment ago. And Isaiah begins to unpack these understandings, and he's talking about how dedicated, how devastatingly awful their predicament is. They're, they're living in the midst of gloom. He, he calls them to remember uh, this, this yoke of burden, the staff of his shoulder, verse 4, the rod of his oppressors, you have broken as on the day of Midian. And so Isaiah is asking them to remember when Gideon went out and Gideon fought the three, with 300 men, he fought all the armies of the Midianites. And he didn't win on the basis of the surprising tactic. He didn't win on the basis of some type of military strategy. He won on the basis that God fought for him. And God delivered the men of Israel in the days of Gideon. 
says, every boot trampling in the warrior, every battle tumult, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. God will once again, Isaiah tells them, set us free. He will once again be a deliverer to us. That even though as Isaiah writes them, they're facing the judgment of God, they're heading to captivity in Assyria, even though these things are the reality of their predicament, God will restore them. He will bring them back into the land. And how is he going to accomplish this? How is he going to accomplish it? We get the stunning response in verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Now as they would have heard Isaiah say this, their thoughts would have gone to... He's going to give us a king. He's going to give us this. Of course he is. This is how God has done this. He gives us a king, and the king comes in, and he grows up, and, and he just kind of catches us unaware, and then he marshals an army, and he goes in, and he just obliterates all of our enemies. This is how God is going to do this. He's going to give this amazing king warrior. And so they begin to read it in terms of this description. And look what he says. He says, the government... government shall be upon his shoulders. And they hear this and they say, of course, he's a king and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. And they're like, just like Solomon, he was incredibly wise. He was so amazing. When God asked him what he wanted, he said, I want to grow in wisdom. And he did. Oh, it's so great. We're going to have a wise king. He's going to be a mighty God. And they said, hold on, what? We understood that he could be a mighty warrior, but how is this going to work? He's going to be a mighty God. How is this, this son who's going to be born going to be a mighty God? He's going to be an everlasting father. They would say, we understand what it's like that David's reign and upon his rule and his, his kingdom and his throne that it wouldn't end, but how is this son going to be an everlasting father? This prince of peace, he's going to rule with peace. And they say, we desperately want peace. Verse 7 says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there'll be no end. So he leaves them with this amazing picture. You and I have experienced peace in small segments over the course of our life. We've experienced peace in our families. We've experienced peace in our, in our work environment. We've experienced peace as a country. And for brief, very brief periods, globally, we've experienced peace. But it's short-lived, right? It's short-lived. And even in the midst of this peace, there's this anxiety that says, when will this peace end? How long is it going to last? And we read of this son, this unbelievable son, who is the answer to all of creation, who's going to have a continued increase and expansion in his government, yet there's never going to be an end of his peace. He's going to establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And they were left to this decided understanding that there was nothing they could do to bring this into effect. It was dependent upon the zeal of the Lord of the hosts. Lord of hosts, to accomplish this. So again, we ask our questions and say, where does peace come from? And we have this understanding that our peace comes from the Lord. But what does peace look like? It looks like a son. It looks like the son that's going to be given. We'll flip over to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 2. Luke 2, 8 through 14, this is in the birth narrative of Jesus. We sang about this a moment ago. 
It says, in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel of the Lord said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, so ten thousands of ten thousands of angels, praising and proclaiming, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. He bursts onto the scene, bringing this prophecy of Isaiah and finding it there in the most unlikely of places, lapped, wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. Finally, peace had come. Ephesians 2.14 tells us that Jesus is our peace. And Luke 2.14 here tells us that there is peace among those with whom he is pleased. With, among those whom, with whom God is pleased, we can have this experience of peace. But still as Christians, we have this understanding that, that we experience this terrific feeling of kind of dislocation, right? Of like, we are a people living in the wrong place, experiencing the wrong things. If he is peace, and if I'm experiencing him interiorly, if this is the reality of who I am, then, then why are things so difficult? Why are my relationships so hard? Why is the experience of my life so different from how I seem to understand this peace of God being unfurled, being unleashed in my life? I think Jesus offers us a decidedly clarifying statement on this in Matthew 10. All these understandings of peace, Jehoshaphat, we say, where does our peace come from? Our peace comes from the Lord. What does it look like? The devastation of our enemies. Isaiah 9, what does our peace look, or where does our peace come from? It comes from the Lord. What does it look like? It looks like a sun. Luke 2, where does our peace come from? It comes from the Lord. What does it look like? It looks like Jesus, this child who has come. And then Jesus says the most unlikely of things. Matthew 10, 34 through 39. He says, do not think I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set man against his father, daughter against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. And we look at our households today, and many of us don't have a difficult time realizing or, or, or seeing this reality because this is the experience that we've lived out. We, we are a, a nation largely populated by people who have felt the sting of divorce. Some of us personally, some of us as our parents, some of us as our close friends or our children. We are intimately familiar with the devastating sting of divorce, and we're intimately familiar with how painful some of our home lives are. And so we know what it is to be set at odds with our children. We know what it is to be set at odds with our parents or our siblings or our in-laws. 
But when Jesus said this, this wasn't a a tolerable reality within the first century audience that he speaks to. So when he goes to them and says, listen, I've not come to bring peace but a sword. I'm going to take your nuclear family and I'm just going to set you guys against one another. This would have been incredibly jarring for them. They would have said, Jesus, I thought you were pro-family. And it seems to that what you're doing in the midst of this is working against the reality of the family working in this reality of our culture. How is this possible? Even going so far as to say that our enemies will be those in our household? I thought you were peace, Ephesians 2.14. How is this working? Jesus shows us. He gives us an understanding of, of how these things work together and why the reality of these things is so. He says we experience these in our own households, and this is why. Look at verse 37 through the end. Whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus comes to you and I, and he says, you have to be, you have to find your ultimate allegiance with me. And we come to this shocking reality daily of the incredible difficulty of this. It is most natural that when a child is born, his or her parents are found to be loving this child, and, and, and the child is naturally loving towards their parents. And so Jesus isn't saying that this natural response is illegitimate. Jesus, Jesus is talking in terms of ultimate allegiance. Where does our ultimate allegiance lie? And on the basis of what is it strengthened? He continues, and he says, whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So he demands our ultimate allegiance. He demands our self-sacrifice. Now, Jesus wasn't speaking in this term of him taking the cross. He was talking about individuals that he was speaking to, that he was communicating with, and his followers of taking up their own cross. They understood the cross to be a mechanism of death. And so someone would come, and they would have the cross member lashed to their back, and they would have to walk up the hill, and then that cross member would be taken and put in place on the pole that was left there. And so when Jesus communicates this and says, you need to carry your own cross and follow me, he's calling them to die. He's calling you and I to die. If we are to experience peace, Jesus has to have our ultimate allegiance, and Jesus has to have our self-sacrifice. Verse 39, he says, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We live in a culture, we live in a society, we are a people who celebrate victory. We want to achieve, we want to do well. As a church, we want to do well. As a people, we want to do well. And in this, we read, he calls us to the abandonment of that. What a mistake that we would find our purpose in making more money. What a mistake that we would find our purpose in having a better, a bigger house or a faster car, a better physique, more education. That we would find our purpose in anything but him. Jesus looks at us and says, abandon that. 
Let our pursuit be made pure. Let our eyes be fixed on him and let him be our purpose. Let us lose our life in him so that we may find it. This is what he calls us to. In losing our life in him, we find peace. It's all the striving, it's all the struggling, it's all the wrangling that is creating in us this sense, this feeling that there is no peace to be had. The peace Jesus has on offer isn't a a, a freedom from from the sting of this world. The the peace that Jesus has on offer isn't this feeling that you're just kind of numb going throughout reality. The, The peace that Jesus has on offer is a peace from and with, a peace with God through him. Jesus extends to us the possibility of receiving peace with God through his sacrifice. Romans 5, 1 says, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm afraid that many of us look at that and we say, that's not the peace I want. I want some experiential peace that's kind of right here, right now, that will carry me through today. I'm afraid that many of us and many of the people we talk to would gladly trade peace with God for peace right now. This is why Jesus wrote this in Matthew 10, because he wants us to understand that even at the most basic element of our family and our existence, if you are a follower of Jesus, there is a very real chance that you will experience this feeling of dislocation and the absence of peace even at home. But if, if you are a Christian, there is this understanding that Christ has come to give you a very real peace in him. That popular passage from, from Philippians 4, 6 that was calling us not to be anxious about anything finds its complement in Philippians 4, 7. Don't be anxious about anything. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The only peace on offer is peace in him. We will experience trouble in this world. We will experience difficulty in this world. We can have peace in him. Listen, if you are a Christian... Your primary responsibility in terms of this peace and how it is propagated is to follow the the command in Matthew 5, 9, or this instruction model for us in Matthew 5, 9, where it says, blessed are the peacemakers. As Christians, we have this radical opportunity to go out and to communicate to a world desperately in need of peace experiencing wrangling, experiencing dislocation, experiencing frustration, and to say to them, there is peace to be had, a peace that you weren't even aware of, a peace with someone that you live your life completely indifferent to. There is a peace to be had, and it is with God. But if today you sit here and and you don't follow Christ and you're experiencing this, this wrangling and you're experiencing this frustration and you're just suffering, there is a peace on offer. There is a peace to be had. 
the sovereign creator of the universe, sent his son and allowed his son to suffer and die and to be raised again so that you might have peace with him. And he calls you to accept his free gift, an extension of peace. Accept peace. Accept Christ. Let me pray for us. God, I'm thankful that your son is peace. That we are able to experience forgiveness that we are able to experience newness of life in him. And God, I pray for those here today that the peace they so desperately need in this time is the peace that you have on offer, peace with you through Jesus. God, I pray for those of us who are just struggling in this moment, feeling the stress and pressure of this season, feeling the stress and pressure of this life. God, that we would find our peace in you. We submit these things to you in your son Jesus' name. Amen.